Good morning, Outlook family. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Whether you're here on campus with me or you're with us online, I'm glad we're together and I'm looking forward to spending the next few minutes with you. Um, last Thursday night, I surprised Tamara with tickets to the Journey concert that was happening down at the Fieldhouse downtown. Toto and Journey were in concert. We had a great time. I could almost feel the mullet that I had in the 80s growing back just as we were there. It was an amazing feeling. I won't do that to you though, but we're going to talk today about leaving old things behind. So let's just all agree I'm going to permanently leave that behind. If you've been around Outlook, my mullet is a recurring theme uh, that some staff people have liked to make fun of me about. So I figure I'll beat them to the punch. Today we are going to talk about leaving old things behind, and we're going to talk, uh, we're looking in this series about new life in Jesus, the new and true life that he brings, precisely thanks to Easter, or more specifically, thanks to the fact that he has risen from the dead. And it is a fact, it is a true fact. This is what Paul is talking about when he wrote to the Romans and said this, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would plant it deeply in our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, be our teacher today. And we're going to do our best to carve out these next few minutes and focus on what it is that you have to say to us through your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Just as Jesus was buried in that tomb we're reading here, and he didn't stay there long, right? So we and our old selves and our former lives are also buried in those waters when we say yes to him in baptism, dead and gone, buried under those waters. And just as Jesus was raised from death, from that tomb, so he raises us from those waters and from our old selves and our former lives to live a new life. New life. Doesn't that sound good? I love the sound of that. Who here couldn't use a little bit or maybe a lot of new life? It is the promise of the gospel. In such newness, we see the preciousness and the beauty of a life lived well following Jesus. We encounter Jesus, we see the contrast of our old life, and we decide to turn around and head in a new direction, His direction, because we're beginning to discover that it's just so good. We begin to live by a new ethic, one of love and, yes, holiness. More on that in a minute. And wholeness. We're not talking here about just the do's and the don'ts that we might have grown up learning in Sunday school. I'm talking about real wisdom and caring and generosity, a good and full life, the kind of life that any of us really, at the heart of it, long to live. We're not talking about an agonizing trudging. So much of what is called religion or even faith from any perspective, Christian or otherwise, gets lumped in with this idea that we're just following some dusty traditions and working really hard to keep to some rules that have been, who knows, established by whom and where, right? 
But I'm talking about a life that isn't this kind of agonizing trudging. I'm talking about a life with the wind of the Spirit at our backs, the energy of a renewed heart beating in our chest, putting spring in our step, not a stringent duty, but a joyful following, a conscious choosing of what is right and good. Since Easter, we've been unpacking what it means to live this new life. We've talked about the fact that we get a new heart, new motivations, that we get a new mind that can think new thoughts, that we get new habits, that we get to experience true healing through this new life in Jesus. And so today we're going to talk about this conscious choosing of right and good, this ethic that we get to live out. Before, we couldn't do it. Now we can Before, we might have thought about such things, well, I've got to do that, right? This is what God says, or I've got to do it to stay on His good side, perhaps we used to tell ourselves, but now we happily realize, I get to. I get to live life as God intended it. We were powerless to do that before without Him. Now, the true power to live in such a way is made available to us. That is good news. We begin to see this life that God calls us into as the resplendent thing that it is, purchased by Jesus, paved by His sacrificial love, and offered today to us. That sounds really good, right? But let's be honest. This perspective isn't always clear to us, you and me. There's a fog of false thinking that can roll into our minds and obscure our view of this life. And at least part of its theme goes kind of like this. Because of grace, in other words, we're willing to accept certain aspects of this good news. Okay, grace is coming to me. I don't need to concern myself much with this idea of ethical living or integrity of character. All this talk of discerning what's right and good and what is is, is futile because everything's forgiven, right? That's what grace is all about, we might think. God is love. Judge not. These are the favorite scriptural snippets of those of us who slip into this way of thinking, right? We'll gravitate toward that, ignore a lot, and focus just on those few words. And that certainly is finding some popularity today. Grace is the absolute foundation of our faith. It means we live for Christ. uh, As we live for Christ, our sins no longer separate us from our Father and our Creator. This is the goodest part of the good news. It's awesome. But it's just the beginning of what grace does. And that's what we want to unpack today. As we touched on a couple weeks ago, living each day in God's grace, it changes us. It realigns our wants, our desires. This is how Paul put it to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, so far so good. We get this. In fact, this is what most people might think of if they have to stop and think. What's Christianity about? What's, Christian, what's life in uh, Christ about? What's faith in Him about? Well, we think, oh, well, I'm, I, I receive salvation thanks to grace. All true. And we think that, that's, that's, that's the, really the whole thing. But Paul goes on to say something here that we might not have at first thought he was going to say. It teaches us. What's the it? Grace. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is just another way of describing that new life 
that he mentions in Romans and that we all thought sounded so good. He's saying this new life, this is what it looks like. It means those appetites and drives that just yanked me all around and really drove my decisions, usually nowhere good, eventually finding myself in the ditch, hurting myself and those around me. Those drives, appetites, they are not going to be the drivers of my life anymore. I'm not going to be jerked around by them, drawn by them, or whatever it is that the world tells me is important. This is just a way to describe. Now, in this new life, I have some ability to, to say no to what deserves my no, and thus yes to what deserves my yes. This is the fullness of grace. It saves us, and it says it teaches us. I could put it like this. Grace not only pardons us, it empowers us. Grace not only pardons us, we get that, and we have to have that, and it is a beautiful thing to receive, but it's only the beginning. There's another part of that story of grace. It empowers us. See, God is expert at giving us exactly what we need, but probably wouldn't expect. And in this case, that's exactly what's happening with grace. If we're going to talk today about what it means to unpack and really live out day to day this life in Jesus, and even the choices we make regarding what's right, what's wrong, what's, what, what deserves our yes and our no, and we're going to begin to explore that. It's a little counterintuitive to think that grace has a lot to do with that part. I thought grace was just about forgiveness. But now, I, on this other side of things, isn't that just God trying to get us to do certain things and not do other things? Isn't that the religion part? But we can remind ourselves He's actually loving us toward a new life, lived as new people. Let me explain. He wants us to be able to live a healthy, whole, wise, and solid life. Mothers, fathers, we all know we want what's best for our kids, right? And God is the best parent that any of us could even begin to imagine. So he wants a good and healthy whole life. Really what he calls sin is when we deviate from that. It's not an arbitrary list of rules that he just kind of made up and now we got to memorize and work hard to stick to. We're talking about a description of life as it's best lived. And these are all the ways that we will deviate from that, but to our own ruin, a ruin he would love to spare us from as much as possible, as any good parent would. So he describes life as it's best lived. And what he calls sin is when you and I, and we do it, ignore and reject this life and really in the end, ignore and reject him. We have to trust him and that his way is good and true. And so grace, as we receive the gift of grace, not only does it pardon us, it empowers us. It teaches us to say no. This discipline of saying no, what deserves, learning what deserves our no, is what grace teaches us. But how? How does this work? Well, here's at least one way that I would see an attempt to explain it. When we begin to see that grace equals, but is also greater than forgiveness. Forgiveness is probably the first thing we think of when we consider grace, and rightly so. But we see in this passage that grace bestows upon us, develops in us, self-control, uprightness, and godliness. How does that happen? How does grace that offers salvation also teach us to live lives like this? I would put it like this. Grace turns the lights on. That when I begin to hear the good news of Jesus, maybe for the first time, and maybe, maybe that's you today, maybe for the first time in a really long time, hear it again as if it were the first time. 
You encounter that message, grace, this idea that God knows me, loves me anyway, and wants to forgive me and, and have a relationship with me. Even though I've ignored him and done things my own way, he wants to move past that. He loves me for who I am and you as well. Grace, that's like someone turning the lights on in a dark room. And what happens is I begin to see what a deep hole I was in without him. That I've been spending most of my life digging that hole. And I realize just uh, the, the, the state that I'm in, all doing life left to myself. We come to understand where life was headed with us in charge. We experience the exhilaration that comes from being rescued. You ever been in a, uh, you're driving your car and man, you know that feeling of a near miss? Right? You know, if something had just been a hair differently or a second off, you might have been in a serious accident, something that could have been even fatal. And then you realize, oh, but I'm okay. Nothing happened. I'm, I'm right here and everything's okay. That, 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 that rush that says, I was headed toward eternal destruction. When we encounter the cross, something in us realizes, how did I live my whole life so far ignoring this one who made me, who loves me, who died for me. And we begin to see the lights are on now. I don't want to live that way anymore. We see that we're offered a second chance or a third or a fourth or a twelfth or a thirteenth, right? We turn to the one extending to us this amazing grace, the one who is turning the lights on. He comes into focus and we stop stunned. We are now perceiving in Jesus on that cross and in Jesus walking out of his own tomb, someone who is making something available to us we could have never imagined, someone who has conquered sin and death. Man, the two things that just ruin our lives. And he has conquered them. And he's extending an invitation to you and me that says, I've got a new life. I've made it possible now. I'd love for you to live it with me. We're perceiving what and whom will be worthy of our devotion each and every day that we ever have ahead. The creator and giver of life who chose to die and conquer death that we could fully live. Who and where we were without him, what he's done for us, all that comes into stark relief. We're humbled by the enormous cost of his sacrifice, the depth of our need. We were more desperate than we ever realized and the distance that he traversed to become one of us. Man, when grace turns the lights on, all of this starts to become clear to us. And then we begin as we say yes to him to feel under our feet the solid ground of right standing before this holy God. We could have never made that possible. We didn't even know we needed it. But now we love it. He's made it possible. A new spirit fills us, not only with joy and love, but with wisdom and discernment to begin to live this new life well. That's how grace teaches us. It sheds light. It points the way. It charges us. It changes us. What I'm describing here is really the difference between being a what you might call a categorical Christian and a disciple of Jesus. And around here at Outlook, we've all been categorical Christians at some point in our lives, and man, we are allergic to that. We are sick of it. We begin to realize that this whole idea that if I just said certain words at a certain time with a certain, with a certain right person in the room or whatever, then maybe my ticket's punched and I'm going to heaven. I'm in the category, yep, check, Christian is not what Jesus died on the cross for, not what his love would want to bless us with, doesn't even come close to the life that we're talking about here today. We want to step into being his disciple and understanding that grace not only pardons me, it 
empowers me. And now there's this life that he's made possible. And how can I ignore that life that he died to give me? How could I think, oh, well, that's nice. That's an option. Maybe I'll eventually get around to that. No, that is the life I want to begin to learn how to live now. Grace teaches me what to say yes to and what to say no to. And most of life is trying to learn what deserves our yes and what deserves our no. Amen. So we have to ask ourselves, do we let grace only forgive us or do we let grace turn the lights on and teach us? And the difference is profound. We need to let grace soak into our character, not just cover our behavior. Then you and I can look around in this present age, as the passage puts it, and keep our heads, make good decisions, help other people, and control ourselves. Wouldn't the world be a different place if everyone was getting a little better at that every day? Now, we'll never be perfect this side of eternity. All this talk of of ethics and even a little bit of uh, holiness and righteousness, we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's let's make it clear. We're never going to be perfect this side of eternity. No one is claiming anything close to that. And it bears repeating. Our judgment is flawed. We make mistakes. We're still healing from wounds. We're still escaping the pulls of the world. This is our life on this journey, on this way with Jesus. So in that sense, we will always be imperfect sinners. But now, now, finally, we can be far from only imperfect sinners. That now there's more to our story. Now, by God's grace, we can pay attention and tend to our hearts from which everything we do flows. We can change what's going on in there. We can pull the weeds that are choking out God's word. We can cultivate the good that God plants in us. In the most real of ways, we get to exercise self-control. We get to actually begin to have the power to say yes to the right things and no to that which is wrong. We begin to actually we get to use that muscle and, and, and actually exercise it because of the spirit living within us. We confess the sins that we choose to commit. No more blaming, no more deflecting, no more denying but we also realize that now we can make new decisions, new choices. Let's say that together. Now we can make new choices. One more time, just to really feel it, right? Now we can make new choices. Sometimes that's a hard thing to remind ourselves of, or even really to believe we feel like we're in such a rut or such a pattern in our behavior. But now new choices are made available to us. We can start saying no where no is deserved. And yes to the things that draw and feed our hearts in Christ. Now we can live in grace. It not only pardons us, it empowers us. It empowers us to choose holiness. We now have the ability to make a choice we never could have made before. This is the way Paul puts it to the Ephesians. Check this out. Since you have heard about Jesus and have, made, and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. That's those old drives and old appetites that would just yank us around and those old lies that we used to believe. It says, instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on the new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Check out those words, former and old, now replaced with new and renew. We don't do this on our own. 
the Holy Spirit enables us. However, neither is it something that just magically happens to us without our cooperation. We should, I think, refresh for ourselves this word holiness and that other one, righteousness. Take away from it the idea of holier than thou, right? Or self-righteousness. So often when we hear those words, those are the only things we think of regarding them. But we need to reset them in our vocabulary as something worthy of our pursuit. And biblically speaking, something possible and to be expected in the life of faith. Holiness as in set aside to follow God. Righteousness as in made right and growing. Not self-righteous like I'm going to judge someone else, but just growing in my own sense of what is good and right and true. Never flawless, but wholehearted. Always growing by God's Spirit. Getting better at choosing what's right and saying no to the wrong. It has to be possible. It must be if we're going to become people who are eager to do what is good. That's a great description of living with and in holiness. Thinking of it not as simply as moral perfection, but rightly as continuous improvement. Doing right and yes, doing good as well. I guess if you were to take what we're talking about today and just boil it down, Jesus takes sin seriously but not in the way that you might think or the way that sometimes Christians get a reputation for. Not in a condemning way whose only aim is to rebuke and restrict us, but in the way a doctor takes cancer seriously. In a way whose aim is to heal us and free us. Paul put it like this to his protege, Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, he says. Now please realize, Paul is not condemning himself. This is the same guy who wrote in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's not being unnecessarily hard on himself. He's humbly assessing himself. He's confronting the brutal facts, ones that he says we all do well to confront with the statement he says we would all do well to accept. In fact, I see how it would be very healthy to make this confession regularly, to hear ourselves say out loud, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that includes me. The German writer and philosopher and scientist Goethe once wrote, I love this quote, I've never heard of a sin being committed without full well knowing I had the seed of it within myself. I'd never heard, he says, of a sin being committed without knowing full well that I had the seed of it within myself, too. That is a humble, realistic assessment of our own humanness and our own need for a Savior. Amen? Watch the news, scroll the headlines, listen to the heartbreaking stories of people hurting and exploiting each other, and then say and mean the old but profound words, there but for the grace of God go I. That grace not only pardons me, it's empowering me. But without it, that could be me. I've never heard of a sin being committed without knowing I had the seed of it within myself. There's no room for self-righteousness there, right? No holier than thou. Uh Uh-uh. We're all people in need of a Savior. If you're here and you've said yes to Jesus, I know how you feel. You just feel like, "I, I discovered this good news. I just said yes to what deserved my yes. And I'm so glad that I did. Know this for sure. The first step in any form of false teaching about 
these topics. We'll always uh, start with the minimization of what we're talking about today, of sin. We downplay this to our downfall. Now, we can also overcorrect. You might have experienced preaching or a church that's so focused on that that you just felt beat up by the time that you left, that it was all about condemnation and how terrible that you are. Not loved, but simply God's angry with us. That takes this truth and lets go of all kinds of other things in order to focus on one thing. But you can also go the other way and ignore it altogether and just think, uh, God's so happy with me and, and, and loves me in such a way that, that what I do doesn't mean uh, really anything at all. And uh, that the healthy, whole, holy life that he wants me to live, well, we just don't talk about that. We minimize this thing that hurts us, hurts each other, gets in our way, clogs our prayers, and, and really pollutes our spiritual lives. And, and underemphasizing that is just as dangerous as overemphasizing it. We may and we should find it upsetting when the world calls right what we know God calls wrong. That should grieve us. But we also, and we, we can get really good at that as Christians, but we should also get upset when we begin to call our own wrong, not right, most of us wouldn't go that far, but something just as insidious, no big deal. How deeply does it trouble us when we convince ourselves that what God commands is, at least for some of us on some days, merely what he recommends. In the Beatitudes from a couple of months ago, we read this, uh, this moment where Jesus turns to the crowds and he says something that kind of knocks our socks off. He says, I'll tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. But now we've learned, now we realize the righteousness he's talking about is to transcend that righteousness of rule keeping. That whole sense of just adhering to some dusty traditions and calling it righteousness, that he actually came to this earth, lived his perfect life, and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to infuse new life in us, true righteousness, the ability to say no and the ability to say yes. At the beginning of our time together, I referred to the mullet that I wore in the 80s. I'm reminded of the fact that when I was visiting a friend at his Christian college, um, I was in the cafeteria and, and I felt a tap on my shoulder. This college had certain rules, rules I was not completely aware of. He wanted to let me know, excuse me, your hair is touching your collar. As if I didn't know that, number one. Okay, you know, as if that were, was news to me. But I was breaking a rule. And I, I, I can remember to this day, just now, he didn't, he didn't experience this, but when I got back to my table in the cafeteria, just how angry I was at how ridiculous I felt that rule to be. And how I felt like, dude, you are killing it for the rest of us, because this is exactly why people don't want to follow Jesus. Because you think this means anything at all, and yet it is utterly ridiculous. Friends, I don't know what your encounters with Christianity have been like. Some of them may have been very hurtful or abusive or simply disappointing or overly legalistic in some way that was just a lot like what I just uh, talked about there. But just know this. There is a grace that's so fueled by love that it wants to erase all the things that we say and do and think and feel that separate us from God and his life. And that love wants to do so, so badly, so greatly, so deeply, that it extends what's called grace 
to do just that, to erase all those things and establish that relationship with us. It washes over us. It washes us. It changes us. And it is free for the taking, for the receiving. Think, speaking of receiving, I want to just continue our thinking here. But take, if you grabbed a bread and cup before you came in here today, every week we take our truths that we learn here to the table of communion, remembering what Jesus asked us to remember at his Last Supper. And as we reflect on what we're learning here this morning, let's just, let's just remember, we're not prisoners hoping to get our sentences reduced on good behavior. We are people set free. Free to run a new course and live a true life. I met with a family just before uh, service this morning. To, they, were gonna, they placed their membership in our church, and we had a nice chat. And uh, their eight-year-old uh, she said, uh, uh, can I run back and forth while you're meeting? She just wanted to run in the commons, just back and forth. She just had that much energy, right? That was her question. Can I run back and forth? Of course, the answer was, no, let's, let's save that for later, right? But, but, man, it just reminded me of what I was about to say. I knew I was going to have this moment. When you're free to run in the path of, the, of Jesus' commands, as it says in the Psalms, when we're free to run that course that we've been given, uh, that's been laid before us, it is a great feeling. And the Spirit gives us the energy to do exactly that, the power to do exactly that. Amen? Every week we gather together and we take the bread and the cup and we toast our freedom. We celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And so as we take this bread that Jesus said represented his body broken for us. Let us take it with unshackled hands and hearts. Let's take it together. And as we celebrate this freedom, this ethic, this power that we've been given, let us raise a glass to grace and celebrate it together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truths that you've laid before us today. We ask, God, that you would help us, as only you can, to run with that truth, to, to run in the path that it lays out before us, to begin to see our lives through the lens of your Holy Spirit and, and see that there's stuff that maybe we've been saying yes to that just deserves our no. And that there are other things that perhaps we've neglected that totally deserve our yes, that We've just left on the sidelines. Lord, forgive us for all those things, all those, all those realities that, that we encounter. Thanks that you want to forgive us and that you freely do. But also, God, with that same grace that forgives us, God, teach us. Teach us by your word. Teach us by your spirit. Teach us by each other's encouragement and example to follow you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.